Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the 360 Experience. I'm your host, Tim Brahim. Today uh, is sure to be a valuable session as it relates to uh, understanding not just um, how to be a successful loan originator and the tools that are necessary to, to, to executing on that, but the mindset, um, the temperament, uh, and the belief systems associated with uh, doing this job at a high level. My guest today is a friend, um, a colleague, um, a client, but most, most importantly, a friend. His name is Ryan Grant. I think most of you probably know who Ryan Grant is. If you don't, you're going to be looking him up after this conversation. Uh, Ryan's a, a pioneer in the mortgage industry. I mean, um, he's, he and his partners at uh, Neo Home Loans and uh, Tribe Coaching are, are blazing some really great trails to help people. He's been in the business 17 years. Um, was number one mortgage professional in Orange County uh, when he was living there. He's now living in Park City, Utah. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't really have anything other to say other than just enjoy this chat, you know, that he and I have. Uh, it's just two guys getting together and, and, uh, and having a conversation, and we hope that you enjoy it. What's up, man? Hey, buddy. How are you? Good. How's Utah? It is a really special place. We, I was literally just walking, you know, I'm working from home and I was walking over here and I was like, this actually feels like home home now, right? Like we've only been in the house for, for six weeks, but like the house, it's not our, it's not going to be our long-term house. We're just renting mm -hmm. it. But like, it just feels like the place we should be, which is interesting after only six weeks, you know? Yeah, I've had that feeling before in my life when I, the the last house I moved into, the one you'd been to in in Thousand Oaks. Yeah, like that place felt like home after like two weeks to me, and felt like home until the day I left. Isn't that a bitchin' feeling? That place I mean, felt like home like when I was my second day there. <laughs> I was like, wow, this place is awesome. Yeah, yeah, I miss that place. Ah, yeah. you know, it was time to move on, but you know, you learn from maybe maybe moving on when you don't need to. It's like yeah. it's like leaving something you love and realizing later, like I think I loved it more than I did. You know, so. But I'm glad that you guys are having a good time, and um, I mean that place is is kind of tailor made for you. It feels like you know the mountains are kind of your thing. Like you grow up in the mountains when you were younger. Tell tell me a bit about your when you were younger. Like I don't know anything about your childhood. Really? I thought we talked about this. I mean, a little bit, you know, but yeah, there are listeners too. Don't forget. <laughs> okay. um, I grew up in Sonora, you know, by Yosemite. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. So, um, you know, we would always be either skiing, like, like wakeboarding. Like, how many people live there? Not a lot. Uh, I think there was like 12,000 people in the whole town. There was like oh, one. Wow one high school, right? You have to drive like 45 minutes to get to the next high school. Um, awesome town, right? Like wonderful place to grow up in. Um, and we were always out, you know, snow skiing, because snow skiing was like 30 minutes away. Uh, we were at the lake a ton, right? Wakeboarding. And that's like all my fondest memories are like, you know, being outdoors, doing stuff, you know, a bunch of golf courses, um, you know, kind of a small town feel, but um, you know, a little too small sometimes for me. Right. And so that's why I like park city is great. Cause it has a small town feel, but it, at the same time, it feels like, you know, everyone in the, in, in the country knows it and is here at times. Mm -hmm. And um, it's easy to get to super easy to get to. Yeah. Um, brands from Tahoe. Right. So we have a place in Tahoe that we just absolutely love, which you got to come to one of these days. Um, and yeah, that feels like home every time we're there and 
It's just because we're like literally a good way to put this in perspective is if you would have seen our house in Orange County full of like toys and, you know, stuffed animals and all sorts of, you know, stuff for the girls, we literally haven't unpacked it from the garage. We've been here for six weeks. They haven't asked about a toy once. They haven't like wanted to do anything other than like do all the stuff we're doing, right? And like spending good time together. And um, so it just, it's more energetically like probably where we're supposed to be, you know? Yeah, there's a lot for kids to do in nature and play outside. And especially when it's a environment that has a bit more space and they can explore, but safely explore, right? I mean, that's a really nice aspect of being in a place like that. Um, But like back, so like I'm super curious, 12,000 people is a super small town. Like, I mean, I, I can't get my, like I thought I grew up in a small town. It was like 120,000. So this is like, you know, that's big for most one-tenth, towns. One-tenth, right? And so, but <clears> then, you know, you did all these sports, but you obviously became really good at them. I mean, I mean, look, you're, you're an outstanding athlete period in so many ways. And I'm wondering like, how did you get good in a small town like that? You had nobody to compete with you. You were just naturally good at water skiing, skiing, you know, good golfer, all these things, or, you know, was there any competition or were you just like this guy that killed everybody? <laughs> no, I was actually karate. I mean, fuck. I mean, you're a black belt in karate too. So I was, other than like martial arts, right? Like I, I, I excelled there, but otherwise I was good at everything, but great at nothing. Right. Like, well, like it's all subjective. Right. But you know, I was never going to be a professional in any sport. Right. Like it was, you know, I was good enough at them and I could do them, but I think it really stems from my like competitive nature and my martial arts background. What do you think the competitive nature comes from? Is there any pivotal moment in your life that you can access or is it just like ever since you were young, you were competitive? I have no, like I've thought about that quite a bit and you and I have had some conversations around it, but um, I don't know. I think it's just a inherent quality or trait because I don't know, maybe it's like the pugilistic nature of the sports I was in young early. Like, so my first sport was martial arts when I was four, um, you know, boxing really early, wrestling really early, um, all sports where like, if you're not good, it hurts. I mm, think, you know, interesting. Um, yeah. So that could have just carried over into like, you know, all the other stuff that I, that I did. I was listening to a, a Joe Rogan podcast recently. I don't remember who he had on the show. It might've been Lex Friedman. And um, they were talking about, you know, uh, it was, it's, it's in our, in our, in our nature to be pushed to the edges of things and to learn to push through it. But a lot of people never are indoctrinated to that at an early age. And that's kind of the benefit of, of sports and competitive, competitive activities, right? Is that you kind of get used to losing in something, being pushed to the edge, those types of things. And you know, you push through it, it gives you confidence in yourself, you know? So, I mean, cause you're somebody who has a lot of confidence except for when you're playing me for money in golf, but I understand. <laughs> but other than that, you always have a lot of confidence. Yeah. You guys smoked us in pickleball for sure. That was embarrassing. Yeah. No, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm just like, what do you think? Have you, you said you've kicked it around. Like, I mean, you're just ultra driven. What, what do you think that, where do you think that comes from? Well, 
I think drive and competition are different things, right? Like the competitive nature, I'm not sure what comes from that. The drive is like this fear of not realizing my fullest potential. Um, I heard something a while back. Um, I don't know how long ago, probably would be good to know, but someone said the definition of hell is when the person you are when you die meets the person you could have become at your fullest potential. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a terrible thing, right? Like, what if you meet this person you could have become and you're like, I had that in me, but you just never found it. Yeah. That's an interesting narrative, right? I mean, you're telling yourself a really powerful story there, right? And I mean, I think that's a beautiful share because it, it's always important to, it's, it's we're going to break down lots of things, you know, tactical to business here in a bit. But like, I think that it's really important to understand beyond the tactics, what's the energy. And like, you have a, a consistent energy behind wanting to, you know, grow your business, grow in other aspects of your life, et cetera. And you don't really, you're not the kind of guy that needs to be told to do it. And, and what I heard you say was fear, right? I mean, that's always a fuel. It's actually, I think, the fuel from what I've examined that is most powerful in a lot of ways. You know, people take a lot of actions to run away from fear, like worried about the alternative type stuff. So to not like realize your fullest potential, that's, a, that's like using fear as your friend, you know? And how long have you, how long have you, sorry, how long have you thought that way for? Like, when did you start actively thinking about, I need to reach my fullest potential? Was that taught to you when you were a kid or were you, did you learn it on your own? What do you I think, think? might've just been realized as I was a kid, right? Like I was, it was very clear to me that if I practiced something that I could get good at it, right? Like I could see results quickly, right? And so why not do that in every aspect of life, right? Like that's why, you know, I take coaching with you and the L360 group. Like it's that to me is a, a practice where I I'm not the best version of myself. And when I heard you talk and I heard what the group does, I was like, that wasn't okay with me that I knew that that existed and I wasn't that person. Right. So I was like, I'm going to go practice this until I get good at it. Right. And so I think just examining every corner of my life and like fatherhood and being a good husband and be a good son and a, a good leader, um, a good learner, um, a good friend, right? Like I analyze those things a lot. And I ask myself, like, am I the best at that? And if not, then I want coaching. I want help. I want to practice until like, till I get there. Cause I just, it scares me to leave anything, you know, for like a basketball analogy to not leave anything on the court, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is the inverse of that? Do you ever feel like you're going so hard that you you compromise or sacrifice anything? Like is something being sacrificed as a result of the drive, the extreme drive, or do you view it all as just net net positive stuff? It's funny because I had two thoughts like almost simultaneously when you said that. And one part of me said yes, the other part said no, like at mm -hmm. the same time. Now that makes sense. It's Tell me more. Say say more about that, but that totally makes sense to me. So you said, like, is there any negative aspect? Um or, or what, you know, something always falls off the table. Like Danny uses an analogy with me one time. He's like, you know, you, you know, if you have a full table and you put something else on the table, well, something else is going to fall off, right? You just, maybe it's so far away that you don't, you don't see it. Mm -hmm. Maybe that might've been you who told no. me that. Love to take credit for that one brother, but that, that was probably, wasn't me. First, first time I've heard it actually. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I would always put something more on the table, which 
was the positive because it helped me grow. It helped me do more. It helped me see more. But like, there's always something that I don't see that falls off the table. And I realize that at some point I pick it back up, put it on the table and something else falls off. Right. So it's kind of like a, a good and a bad thing where I'm always trying to grow and put more cups on the table, but some are inevitably going to, you know, sometimes friendships suffer because I'm focused on family and work, but there's also seasons of life where you have to just know that that's okay. Right. And as long as you don't completely forget about it and you can circle back up, pick up that dish, put it back on at some point. Right. So I think the answer was yes and no at the same time. It's a good answer. Um, because I don't think it is absolute, right? Like, I mean, there's, there's pros, there's, there's areas of awareness of, well, you know, this is, this is what's suffering as a result. And then you try to rebalance and recalibrate. I used to, I, I did this one thing for a while. I haven't done it maybe in six months, but it worked, worked really good for like two years where I just made a list of friends in my, to, in my to-do list, like, like 20 friends. And I'm like, I want to stay in touch with these people. Okay. Like, like this is bullshit. Like I'm only in touch with them like every once in a while. And these are like life friends. And so I just put it my to-doist and then I just made a commitment that whenever I go drive somewhere for 30 minutes, instead of listening to the radio or gelling out, I call one of them. I just boom, go to the list and call, Hey, how's it going? You know, even if I'm just leaving a voicemail and we're trading a couple of voicemails, it's better than haven't talked to you in nine and a half months, bro. How you been? You know? <laughs> so well, it, the longer it, the longer the separation, the harder it is, right? Because mm -hmm. it's like, uh, I don't know, I haven't talked to him in a while, right? So you kind of yeah. justify not calling, well, that'd be weird because I, you know, and like every month that goes by, it gets worse, right? Well, yeah, because then you start getting in your own head and you're like, man, I'm, I'm really a jerk and right. what an ass I am. They think. Now, yeah, now it's like, it's like the loan officer who doesn't stay in touch with their database for four years and a refi boom hits. And then they're like, shit, like I got a lot of people I could call, but I don't know if they're going to be mad at me or if, or if they're going to even remember who I am. So then they don't call, you know, I mean, uh, it, that that's true. always a dynamic. So, all right, back to your childhood. So, one question, one question before my childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Did I make the list of your 20 people? Yeah. Yes. Oh, oh, did you make the list of yes. the 20? Uh, to be honest with you, no, you didn't, man. Oh. You're asking an honest answer, but you're on my next list. Good. How's that? Okay, I'm going to make a note of that right now. Um, You'll be 21. <laughs> so was there a pivotal moment in your childhood that you'd like you would say shaped you in, in any meaningful way? It doesn't have to be related to what your drive is. It can be, but just anything like something from your childhood that. No, well, you know, man, you know, I, uh, this is one, like, it's weird because this is one part of my life where I am insecure, right? Like I'm not insecure in a lot of things, but the most inspirational people, the, the, the leaders, the people that I see that like have the best story, right. They've always overcome something, right. They've always started from the bottom, right? Or they had a setback in life or they, you know, like there's a lot of people at Neo where, you know, the reason we're so driven to, to change this industry is because of the childhoods and the lack of financial education and the insecurity and the impact. And, you know, you know, a lot of these stories, you know, and then here I am with it, lived a great, like not a damn thing wrong with my life, right? Growing up. I mean, Amazing parents uh, weren't rich, but you know, probably upper middle class, especially for Sonora, right? We 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 never were wanting for anything. Um, you know, got to play every sport I wanted. You know, school came pretty easy. 
got good grades, went to an awesome college, right? Like my parents paid for college, which is like, you know, an incredible gift, right? especially knowing how much it costs. Um, there was nothing that I could pinpoint to say like this shaped me. And that's like a, a weird insecurity I have because it's like, you know, I go and tell a story. It was like, well, you started on third base, right? Like it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. 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 I could, I mean, I could, I'm not saying, yeah, that that's what I think, but I'm saying, yeah, I could see where you'd frame it up that way. I mean, I don't know, like, maybe we could look at that if you don't mind me saying like just sitting here listening going well maybe that's just maybe it's not even worth it to question why you didn't have to overcome something and just accept the fact that you've been very fortunate and you're going to take that good fortune and do the very best that you can with it and help as many people as you can with that fortune i love that i do but my insecurity is that <laughs> i've never heard that story that's like moved somebody why do you need to move somebody? Well, I mean, to like, you know, the fact that we're starting a movement with our mortgage company, right? Like the fact that we're, you know, trying to inspire the people to be better versions of themselves, right? Not just as a, as a mortgage professional, but as a general, genuine human being, right? So if I'm trying to have that type of impact um, in a couple different areas, I've never heard that, you know, you go to all these speeches and it's like, wow, that was amazing. He went from here to here or she did this and that and she overcame. You never heard the guy that's like, I literally have had zero problems, amazing friends, like amazing family, like this, you know, life that I would only dream of, but here's why we should go do this. Right? Yeah. But I, I mean, I, I think that there might be, I mean, look, it's easy to go to these like experiences that we view as the iconic classic leadership, you know, visionary inspirers, and you can, you know, list off all the famous ones. But I also think that there are a lot of great leaders that, that inspire in a different way. So look at the guy from Patagonia. Did you see that story from like a couple of days ago? I, I mean, I don't know that much about the story, but what I do know is that this guy was just a guy who started a company in 1971, I believe, and has consistently kept on his mission and his employees love working there. And it's been to be able to be, you know, e eco-conscious, right? And now he got to a point where he just gave his company to environmental change. Like that's... Sure. Yeah. Dude, that's moving. When I read that, I was like, and that's not like somebody who went from rags to riches. It's just somebody who had their heart in a certain direction and followed it hard and led from that place. Yeah, I think it's a good awareness. Like this, you know, well, there's a lot of these stories of inspiration that I, you know, I just may be looking for that classic, you know. You want to be Rudy. Started from the bottom, <laughs> now you're up. You want to come out of the tunnel with the gold helmet and you're on the team's shoulders. See, you want to be sea biscuit. Like I know, I know all the, I know all of the, you know, the drama here that you're conjuring up around who, yeah. you know, the pursuit of happiness guy, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. So, so you got us to, okay. So you got us to, you, you get past, you know, Sonora and you go to college and you get into the mortgage business and was, did that come pretty easy? Would you say, I mean, how did you, what were your experiences initially in the mortgage business and were there any challenges you had to break through? The story I tell a lot of people just cause I'm, I like stupid jokes is, you know, they're like, oh, how did you get in the mortgage business? And I was like, well, I, yeah, I just grew up, always wanted to be like a loan officer. 
and they look at me super funny. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I had like a poster of Tim Brahim on my wall. It was like, you know, and, and then obviously You're like, who's Tim Brahim? <laughs> um, but no, I, I was going to be an attorney. Um, you know, my whole young childhood career, I was, you know, I did all the law stuff. I interned at law, legal practices. I went to DC for like young lawyer stuff. And so I went to college, studied political science and law and just did not want, like learned that being an attorney was not a thing that I wanted to do. Like I just saw like a lot of the downfalls of human society in that practice. Um, and none of the attorneys were happy. And so, um, ended up just kind of taking a year off. And in that year off, found the mortgage industry, my now brother-in-law called and he was like, Hey, you know, I made a lot of money my first month in the mortgage industry. And I was like, what's a mortgage. And is there one of those companies around here? And, uh, yeah. Opportunity to make money, man. You know, yeah, that's all I cared about. Right. Cause I just needed money for law school. And that was just like, uh, okay, I can make it and then I'll go. Um, and because I was so disenchanted with the legal industry, and because the money came so easily back then and so quickly, I was like, well, maybe I'm just going to give this a shot. Um, unfortunately, I learned literally nothing for the first, you know, four or five years because it was just subprime call center stuff. And so um, I was just under the impression that that was the industry and that's how it worked. Um, so I was going to actually in 2011 was going to go. Um, I was going to leave the mortgage industry because I was just fed up like the ups and the downs. And I just wasn't fulfilled there. So I was going to go to business school. And my dad was like, Hey, like, why don't you try going to, you know, talk to realtors and like have them send you business, like use your personality. And I was like, I don't even think that's a thing. I was like, I'm pretty sure you just send out mailers and then people call you for refinances. <laughs> I know it's another sport that you have yet to master that you're getting ready to engage in. Keep going. Right. Um, <laughs> And I was like, yeah, I, I guess like I'll give it one more shot. And so I remember I joined iMortgage March of 2011, no past client database, no CRMs, um, never met a realtor, never done a purchase. This is five years, almost six years since I started. Right. And so, and I was massively in debt underwater on my house, right? Like it was grim. And, uh, I just, I was like, all right, I'll, what do I do? And they're like, you got to go to open houses and broker previews. And I was like, what's a broker preview? You go to some strange restaurant and everybody gathers there and realtors talk about their listings and their properties. And then you can like network and they'll start to send you loans. I was like, all right, give it a shot. Uh, and it was ugly for a while. Like real ugly. It, did it stretch you? Do it like stretch oh. your personality? Well, I mean, I'm not yeah. the guy who walks into a room yeah, and me like neither. lights it up, right? Yeah. I'm the guy who walks in, stands in the back, kind of surveys it, like, you know, am I safe, right? Um, so I remember the first time I went and they're like, you just have to stand up and just say, introduce yourself and say something about yourself. And public speaking was very low on my skill chart. Um, so I like quickly wrote something out and like brought the piece of, this was like a 20 second thing. I like brought the piece of paper up with me. I'm standing in front of an audience of like 12 people, right? Cause these things aren't very well attended at times. And keep in mind, this was just coming out of like the recession and you could see the piece of paper shaking like visibly. 
Like it wasn't just me, the whole audience saw me like shaking a piece of paper, trying to read my name and say something about myself. And I just remember, I was like, I, I don't think I can do this. Like there was a time I drove up to an open house. I had three open houses. To, <laughs> I almost feel weird admitting this. I had three open houses to go to on a Sunday. And I, the, the, the Friday or Thursday before I worked with the marketing team, we created flyers, they were co-branded, it had all these things, right? And I pull up to the first house and I just blatantly talked myself into why I shouldn't go in there. Like it wasn't even close. I was like, no, like it's weird. I can't see the front door. I'm just going to go. So I go to the second house <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. This doesn't, I'm going to go to the third house. And I sat outside of the third house for like 30 minutes. And I was like, I don't want to just go in there. Like they don't know me. I don't, I don't know what to say. Right. Like I was like, I'll do it later. So I leave and go back home. And Brian was like, how was your day? Oh, you were with Brianne at the time already. Yeah, she was my girlfriend. Okay. She's like, how'd your day go? Because she knew I was trying to build my business and like, you know, struggling through it. And I was like, oh, it was awesome. Yeah, you had to show your woman that you're a man, right? Wow. You had to lie, you couldn't. Right? <laughs> I'm like, oh no, baby. Actually, I drove to every house, told myself why I shouldn't go in and left with like a dog with my tail between my legs. Yeah. So that was the start of my Moore's career. So stop one second, okay? Because I want to call something to your awareness. I, I don't know if, you, uh, if you're aware of this, but for me, I'm sitting here and I'm going, well, I mean, first of all, I could relate to so much of what you said. Like, I did all that shit. Like, I mean, man, I could tell you stories about flyers that I would, I mean, I met my attorney indirectly through doing a, a photo brochure with glue stick and, 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 and Polaroid prints on the photo brochure, dude. This is like around the time of Christ, I think. <laughs> so, but yes, the same thing, same trepidation, same like, what the hell am I doing here? But bro, you just told your story. What do you, you, how do you, you want, if you want the story, tell that one. That's a great story. And you, oh, especially right now, that's an inspirational story, man. Like people look at you and they're like, man, he's got his shit totally together. And guy's a good speaker, you know, handsome guy, smart, works with great partners, you know, great teacher, you know, can do a flip over a wake on the back of a boat or on, you know, all kinds of crazy shit, but you worked hard. You confronted your fears. You like you, you ran into like, that's such a real story. I felt all of it. I mean, I, I experienced it. There's so many people out there experiencing it right now. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's what it took. You did what it took. Right. I mean, let's play. I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? Like, like, so are there originators in today's marketplace that, that just straight up aren't doing what they can to make it happen? Yeah. And what do you have to say to them? Like what, what would you, what's your advice? I mean, this, it's probably a bit of a pivot, but it depends on where they are in their season of life, right? Because what I've found is a lot of people aren't doing like the hard work that needs to be done now because they've, they've gotten comfortable, right? Like you've been in this business for the last 10 years right? like, you're likely at a pretty comfortable position. Right. Where, and, and you also have had the last 10 years of not really having to do super hard, uncomfortable work where it pushes you out of your comfort zone. Right. So like, 
that, that audience is different than the audience who was in a similar situation to me, right? The people that need to make a dollar like now or life, it gets real hard, right? Like I was in that position. Like I, I didn't have a choice, right? Like I would have lost a lot of things. I would have, you know, you know, but like, there's two groups of people, there's many, but like there's two kind of factions to me, which is one is the, the mortgage professional who's been in it for a while, who's comfortable and who's already climbed the first mountain. And they're not quite sure if they want to climb the second one. And then there's the person who's like, I'm just climbing my first mountain here. Right. So I'd give different advice to those two groups. Well, hello friends. And I hope that you're enjoying this episode of the 360 experience podcast. To listen to the remainder of this episode, please visit us at The Loan Atlas, where you will also find the most comprehensive resource for mortgage professionals to build their practice, backed by the greatest faculty that's ever been assembled in the mortgage industry. Check us out at the link below or go to theloanatlas.com. Look forward to having you as a guest on our next episode of the 360 Experience Podcast.